Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders, CEOs, and investors to help you scale a business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest, guest is a very special one. His name is Joel Trammell, the American CEO. Joel, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Mike. Yeah, people are just listening. So we have a great guest today, the American CEO. Uh, let us know more about your uh, amazing story and uh, why today you use this uh, signature, the, the American C CEO. Sure, Mike. So uh, yeah, I started uh, my career in the US Navy, uh, teaching in what they call Naval Nuclear Power School, and uh, thought I was going to get a PhD in engineering and that's why I wanted to try teaching, but decided uh, that business and starting a business was much more interesting. I was I really became fascinated with the role of CEO or commanding officer. How do you run an organization at scale? And of course, at 25, no one was going to hire me to run their business. So I had to start my own. <laughs> right. and, and so that's what kind of launched my career was starting my own business. And then you pretty quickly become unqualified to do anything else. So you better figure out a way to make it work. Exactly. I love it. I can recognize myself, not, not the same track record yet, but we will get there. Uh, but but definitely, yes. So then, then we are not suitable for any other context. And then uh, the American CEO comes from a uh, letter that uh, Peter Drucker, the famous business uh, you know, mentor and strategist, wrote to the Wall Street Journal many years ago, where he described a kind of unique role uh, that in the U.S. the CEO takes on. In, in Europe, often the CEO rolls paired with a chairman and works kind of in, in concert with that chairman. But no surprise that the American role of CEO is more of a lone wolf role. And uh, he described that and he titled that letter, The American CEO. So I, I started using that moniker. Sounds amazing. And uh, hey, let, let's start from the beginning. So you founded your first companies in... 1990 to, from 1990 to 1960, uh, right? Uh, from uh, 1990. <laughs> yeah, first company, uh, 1999, 2000 time frame. Um, oh, okay. Uh, uh, oh, excuse me, 1990 uh, time frame, not uh, 2000, 1990 yeah. time frame. Um, yeah, I was uh, getting uh, out of the military, uh, was trying to figure out what to do and, and, uh, you know, I looked at going to business school, kind of the classic track. You go get the MBA and learn how to run a business. But at that time, uh, school I was looking at uh, in Orlando, Florida, where I was needed, uh, wanted you to take 60 hours of undergraduate business before they would uh, let you into their business school. And uh, as an arrogant engineer, I didn't think that made any sense. And so I decided to just start my own business and figured I would learn that way uh, what business was all about. So and you were able to uh, exit those two first companies, right? UST Computers and, and HomeSmart. Uh, and then you decide to evolve to kind of have your first VC bucket company. So kind of hypergrowth, raising capital. So you kind of started with with both two businesses in terms of a bootstrapping mode, I assume, right? So right. kind of more the lifestyle business uh, and being able also to train your muscle as a CEO, identify opportunities, have that kind of freedom that all of us are looking for and being able to uh, design your own destiny. And then you get to the moment that you want to go uh, to the next layer to, to challenge yourself again, right? And 
What about trying to to do something big in a in a short period of time, something more scalable? Uh, and that's what when you evolve to uh, help me with the with the name of the company. I think it's Net Net Pure Q. OS. Yeah, I was correct. <laughs> I should I should trust more on on, on my skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, QoS is a networking acronym for quality of service. So uh, right. it uh, it was kind of a catchy name if you were in that uh, that world. But uh, yeah, the evolution. I mean, I think everyone that's interested in having a business should start one and run it with their own money first. I mean, a lot of people go out and try to raise money. Right. Uh, Let's stop it today. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they don't really know much what, about what they're doing. And you can learn so much, even if it's just running a lemonade stand, uh, when it's your own money and you have to make decisions about uh, how to spend it, uh, you, you take those decisions much more seriously. And when you have to figure out how to put food on the table consistently, uh, you learn a lot. And so I felt like uh, those first two businesses I started where they were coming out of my own pocket and where... Uh, I was able to learn a lot of basic skills across many different areas, because when you start a business like that and you don't have funds, you're, you're doing every job, you're doing sales, you're doing marketing, right. you're keeping the books. And I thought having a little bit of experience in each of those areas has proved hugely valuable in my career. Uh, but then, yeah, and, you know, and you, we watched, I would pick up the Austin uh, business paper uh, every Monday, they would have a business section and you'd see about some new business and, that was getting funded at some crazy valuation. And uh, I had previously maybe been a little scared to take money from a VC type organization, wondering if I would have control, but uh, you know, for the right price, I can be bought. And so as, <laughs> as, as valuations continued to increase, we were, we were fortunate. We started pitching late in 1999 and, and closed our uh, initial round of funding in, uh, uh, March of 2000, which was right as the bubble was internet, you know, wow. bubble was bursting. And if we had waited a few more months, uh, we probably wouldn't have closed the funding, but we were able to raise $11 million. Uh, that was uh, a basically a, a business plan. Uh, it was my wife's intellectual property that she had developed. She's a PhD in electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had one customer at the time. And, uh, we were able to raise eleven million dollars at that point, which was a lot of money in those days. And your wife was a, a co-founder of the business, or a partner? absolutely, yeah, she was wow. the, and That's it was really her her intellectual property, yeah. And uh, yeah, that is certainly uh, different running a business with your your wife, though. In our case, it was I would say relatively simple. I mean, she was clearly the technologist; she was clearly the expert in her field. And she really didn't have much interest like many technologists in kind of the rest of the business. And so it was kind of, she ran the technology and everything else was my problem. Amazing. So kind of the CEO, CTO, uh, the, the ideal founding team for uh, a VC backed company or any tech company, right? So someone right. Who, who knows the business and, and someone uh, who knows the, the technology and, uh, and the industry, right? Absolutely. Okay, cool. So... So we started with the 90s on your 20s. Now we went to uh, the 2000s uh, and you start the camp. You raised the first round in 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 um, in the in 2000. In 2000, correct. Thank you for helping out. And then you exit the company in 2009 for 200 million dollars, uh, returning 10x to your investors to CA uh, Technologies, which is well. Uh, amazing 
Uh, in terms of, of the size of the business, are you able to share any kind of just people understand in terms of headcount or in terms of more or less? Oh, sure. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, size? we yeah. yeah, we built the business from, you know, basically zero in revenue when we were first funded to about $60 million in revenue. Well, uh, we okay. had, uh, you know, 31 consecutive quarters of double digit year over year growth, which uh, amazing, which was a great run. Uh, you know, we did have to deal with soon after we got funded, of course, uh, in 2001, 9-11 happened and there were issues obviously around that so in anything and then it was kind of bookended by 2008 when Lehman failed and we had the financial crisis uh, you know that caused another set of issues but uh, the business uh, performed exceptionally well and you know I, you look back and you go if you had a business with those same numbers a year or two ago they'd have been telling you that right. business was worth two billion dollars or something so you Correct. know Timing timing matters, but 200 million was an excellent exit. Uh, and as you mentioned, it provided a 10x return to our investors. So everyone was happy with that deal. Yeah, we were just imagining uh, a 10x. Uh, it would be at least 600 million, right? So, and then we know the the multiples uh, that uh, we have been seeing. Uh, oh, yeah. As you yeah. said, one year and a half ago, uh, now sure. things are a, bit, a bit more calmer, but still uh, <laughs> higher multiple than, yeah. than what you got at, at the moment. But let's also have in mind that you were kind of one of you were a lot early and uh, and a lot ahead in terms of the movement than we than we saw evolving in terms of you know more VC forums, more founders wanting to to start their own companies and, and raise capital and go the go through the VC route. I think that nowadays we see kind of almost the opposite movement, which is they go through VC and then they get to a moment that they would love to create a profitable machine. They don't want to be dependent on aggressive growth when there is no market. So we, we start seeing kind of the contrarians saying, we don't want VC. We want to go through kind of more lifestyle, have our own independence, have more have more freedom, which is good to see because at the, at the time there was not the, the option. So it was much more, we need to build our own businesses in a bootstrapping mode. And uh, if we really have an outlier, ID and outlier team, and and we have the right timing and the the capacity to raise those funds. Funds, then we go through the VC route. But very few people would know about it, right? So maybe more in, in the valley and and so on. Absolutely, yeah. And and you know that th these things go through cycles. I mean, entrepreneurs often make the mistake of assuming that the current conditions are going to be the conditions forever, and and they're not. <laughs> and, and be prepared. And you know, I was telling people a few years ago, you're you're not always going to be able to raise money at a huge valuation. Be prepared, and some weren't. And obviously, we've seen the fallout of that over the last uh, you know year. Absolutely. So and uh, and then you go to your second company, your second VC backed company. Not your second; it would be your fourth. Uh, so two <laughs> on a bootstrapped mode, uh, sure. two on a VC backed mode, which is Cash IQ. Or... Yep, that's correct. And uh, that was kind of a hybrid model, I would say, because uh, that business came about. Uh, I initially funded that uh, business out of my pocket with the proceeds from the NetQOS sale to buy some assets from a, of a failed startup. Uh, uh, at the time, uh, there was a, a startup that uh, had been in about $20 million had been invested. Uh, it had it had gone bankrupt and uh, Silicon Valley owned the assets. And so we initially bought the assets and then we syndicated the deal out kind of to family and friends rather than institutional VC 
type money. Well, interesting uh, movement. And then you are there since 2012, just 18 months, and you yes. are able to sold it to NetApp and again, have a return of 7x to, to your investors. So what you'd like to highlight there in terms of the lessons <laughs> learned and what was well, the challenge for you as well, right? So you, you just were successful starting, scaling and exiting a, a VC-backed company. So we, you, you have gone through all the cycle, which is very rare, let's say. Uh, sometimes we think that we, as, as we saw this in, in, in the magazines and in podcasts, that we, we think that it's easy, but the no. majority of us, unfortunately, will not have that story to, to tell. Right. right. So, so yeah. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, the second one, you know, goes under the mantra of it's better to be lucky than good. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we were smart enough to acquire the asset, uh, which was some intellectual property around uh, building a high-speed storage appliance. Um, we re-engineered the product. We got the product ready to release, and we were just starting to generate revenue. And uh, I, I mean, I think things were going pretty well at the time, but uh, it was unclear whether the product was going to find product market fit, how big the market was. All those questions were still very unanswered. And NetApp came along and needed the technology for a purpose that we had never imagined the technology would be used for. And so it happened that we were standing in the right place at the right time with just the right technology. Uh, and we were able to take advantage of that and, and, and ex, you know, uh, return, as you mentioned, 7x to investors over a, a very wow. short period of time. Wow. So and nowadays, there is also a kind of a new famous trend also for someone, for, for people who are in VC or are MBA students, which is instead of starting your own company or go work for a large company, why don't you buy a business and then scale that business instead of go from the zero to one that we know it's uh, the, the the odds of success are very low uh, and it takes a lot of time until we find product market fit. So why not find a business that is already product market fit? Maybe the, the owners have a succession problem or they don't know or they don't want even to uh, scale it from one to 10 or 10 to to 50 and go buy that business was more with that mindset that you were when you look at to uh, catch IQ or were you trying to find some something uh, in, in this case it was different because it was a failed startup as you said but we're trying to kind of pick an asset instead of building something from scratch again and, and trying to 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 be faster in terms of uh, making it work yeah, the way I thought of it and um, in, in the way I think of technology businesses in general is first of all, is it a big problem? Are you obviously are you you're solving a big problem? But then do you have some unique ability and expertise to solve that problem? Uh, and typically on these difficult technical problems, there aren't a lot of people around the world that can solve the problem. I mean, in the NetQOS case, the network performance example, my wife was, you know, arguably the world's expert in network performance based on uh, work she had done previously in her career. And when you are the expert at, at something like that, and, and maybe you're not the only one, maybe there are two or three other groups in the world, but there aren't many people who can solve that particular problem. And so what I saw in Cash IQ was a problem that I thought was a significant problem, and they had figured out how to solve it. Now, they had not executed on solving the problem, but they had the team together 
that knew how to solve the problem that I believe was capable of solving the problem. And so I think that that makes some sense. And sometimes when you're looking at uh, at challenges in technology companies, do they have that real competitive advantage of knowing how to solve a very difficult problem that only a few groups in the world probably uh, have the capability and resources to solve? Yeah. I assume at this stage in 2009, so before uh, 2012, when, when you bought this company, uh, you were already in the moment that you were almost financially uh, free. So you had the option, uh, the luxury of thinking about the, the next years, which sometimes it's also tough for some founders who exit their businesses, right? So what's next? Of course, you already saw it in two businesses before, but maybe at the time you didn't have the freedom to say, okay, now I will do just whatever I want and I don't need to work anymore uh, to to make money. So I, I, I'm i able still to make money, but just uh, to to do what I love, right? So, and and to have an impact and to find a higher purpose for, for what I, for what I do. Um, so, and, and that's why in 2013, I assume that you, you got passionate about having a larger impact and, and creating kind of the um, core software and, and kind of building a new category, the CEO stack. I'm, I'm just introducing that topic because the majority of our listeners should be listening. So are you not asking any questions to Joel about some of his lessons learned, starting, scaling, uh, and exiting a company? Because that's the main topic of this podcast. Yes, I'm just waiting because Joel is also a, a book author and he has been kind of summarizing all the lessons learned as CEO and helping other CEOs. That's that's your big passion today, right? And sure. uh, we will get there uh, in a minute, <laughs> right? So, and let us know more about this new chapter on your life. So bootstrapping companies, uh, starting and scaling VC backed companies, this experience in 18 months about uh, buying a, a failed startup and, and turning it into, in, into a, a great return. And now it's much more kind of, how do I create a movement? How do we have a larger impact? How do I do something that I love? And uh, it is not only attached to, uh, to, to, to the money game, right? Right, yeah, and, and I, I mean, I helped obviously when I started businesses that we were going to make money doing them. Yep, uh, but absolutely. I was really fascinated by how you run a business. Uh, that was really the driving factor. And if I'd have had to, after 10 years of running businesses, had to go back and get a job, I would not have felt like that was wasted time uh, because that was just really the passion was learning how to run the business. Now, the fact that we, I did become you know, wealthy uh, from doing it was great and did, as you mentioned, give me the opportunity to think about things differently. Uh, and really what I began to observe was many businesses that failed uh, that I thought failed for the wrong reason. I mean, there are a lot of reasons businesses fail. Sometimes you just don't have the right product. Your timing's not right, whatever. But if you get all those details right, a lot of these businesses I saw fail or not be as successful as I thought they could be were to poor management and leadership. And I thought that there was no reason that should happen and that maybe I could contribute to educating CEOs on how to better run their businesses. So if they got in the right position where everything was going well, that they maximized their return. I mean, I've often seen businesses that I thought should have turned into home runs, turn into singles or strikeouts because of just poor management and leadership. Nothing technically about wrong with the product or or what they were doing, but they just didn't understand how to scale a business. And so, you know, that's why I was excited to come on your podcast, because this is the topic that you spend okay. a lot of time, I know, talking about. Absolutely. 
and uh, and again, you already explained that that you create also the why you 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 have this signature, the American CEO. So in two thousand fourteen, you also create the, the American CEO brand to build uh, educational resources for for chief executives. And then 2019, 2020, and even this year, you, you keep creating uh, new brands to this ecosystem to support CEOs to be successful and also their teams. So the Texas CEO magazine, the Manager 360 for much more for, for the, the teams of the leaders. Uh, so the managers, right, as, as the name says, and then the, the CEO uh, S or uh, kind of more related with your book, I imagine the chief executive operating uh, system. Yeah, so I'm always looking for ways to to reach CEOs, uh, to reach them where they are, um, and try to educate them on the things that I think I've learned along the journey. And I've spent a lot of time teaching, and uh, that is, you know, in, in an endeavor where you really learn the most uh, when you try to teach a subject. So I started teaching a CEO course uh, now 15 years ago. And so when you've, wow. when you've taught it for that long and that many, you've seen that many different situations, you learn a lot about the job. And so, you know, I, I tongue in cheek tell people I got the best system in the world for being CEO uh, because it's the only one I know of that somebody's out there, <laughs> you know, day to day teaching uh, how to, how to be CEO, particularly at scale. This is not, uh, you know, just focused on the startup world, but really on the scaling piece of the equation. And that's an area where there's just not a lot of literature uh, out there on exactly how to do the job from people who've been in the chair and done it. Yeah. And so let, let's go to, to that toolkit. But before, uh, you still wanted to, to have a new challenge because you were maybe getting bored uh, just working on, on this trend and helping others. You wanted to go to the, to the driver's seat again. So you said, oh. Maybe what about leading a public company, right? So black box from 2017 to 2019. So yeah, well, that was one that I, uh, you know, kind of stumbled into. I'd been on the board of the company. Uh, one of my previous investors was chairman of the board of a, a small public company, and and so he had asked me, uh, you know, now that I had free time, would I be willing to serve on the board of the company? And I saw it as a favor to him to help out uh, serve on the board and. Uh, the challenge uh, serving on a board is very different than being in the CEO chair and, and you can't have the same influence you do. And a public company, you know, board is also much more structured than a private company board. And and so that was fine. But uh, then uh, the company ran into some issues. Uh, the board decided to replace the CEO. And I remember sitting at the meeting where they decided we decided this and looking around the table and realizing that I was the only one at the table that wasn't collecting social security at the time. And so uh, I was likely to be the next CEO because when you have a small public company and it's struggling and you, you decide to fire the CEO, there aren't a lot of choices. Uh, and right. so, uh, so yeah, I had to jump back into the chair and spend about 15 months um, getting that company uh, in a position uh, to, to be sold. And it was really a uh, a, a stressful time. It was a firefighting drill. It was not the ideal CEO position where you come in and set a vision and can grow the company. And it was really all about a, a bunch of fires that the company had and trying to put out the fires and keep the keep the wheels turning. Turn and yeah. And we managed to, to do that at least well enough to get the shareholders some money out of the deal. Amazing. So and so let's try to to kind of summarize all the lessons learned during these stages. So again, Bootstrapping businesses, 
scaling or starting scaling and exiting VC backed businesses, even buying technology and then finding an exit to that technology, then leading also public company, but also already again founding new products, new companies to support CEOs to be successful to create this CEO stack. Um, so what what is the the book um, Shift Executive Operating System about and uh, what are the main areas that you were able to, let's say, structure in order to support CEOs, even in your CEO course that you were talking about? Sure. So, yeah, so the I'd, I'd written a book called uh, CEO Tightrope. And and when I wrote that book, it was it was related, certainly, to the training I had been doing. Uh, but I wasn't I, 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 I didn't want to be arrogant and say, this is how you do the job. And there's only one way to do the job. And and, and be super specific about it, uh, because first of all, I didn't know that answer. Uh, and I assumed that there would be people come out of the woodwork that would tell me how I was wrong about my approach, or here's a different approach, or you didn't know this or didn't know that. And, and instead, what I found through training hundreds of CEOs were most of them were craving somebody to tell them exactly what to do. Now, they, they, they may want to customize it for their particular business, uh, but they, you know, there was just a dearth of information about specifically what the CEO does. Yeah, you can read all these high uh, falutin books about leadership as a trait, you know, and all the kind of sound good, feel good kind of stuff. But but what does the CEO really do on a day to day basis? Uh, what are their responsibilities when they get up in the morning? What do they need to make sure has happened in the organization? And so this led me to, to, to develop Chief Executive Operating System, which is really a playbook for if I was going to run your business, uh, what would I do and kind of in what order would I do it? How would I approach these various things, even to the point of here are some templates and you know structures and stuff that you might find helpful in uh, that journey? And can you tell more about, so what are those structures about? So what, what is kind of the structure of the book, et cetera, et cetera? So sure. People get uh, so, so I've divided the CEO role into five fundamental responsibilities. Uh, no shock to the people that it starts with owning the vision, uh, where where the company's going, what what's our purpose, uh, what's our mission, vision. We talk, you know, about how you how you put that in words that inspire people. Uh, what are our values? This is a, a concept that a lot of people talk about, but don't execute very well, because most of the time when when they talk about values, they, they really mean virtues, things that we universally agree are good. So they'll write things like honesty down as a value that tells your employees absolutely nothing. Everybody knows you want employees to be honest. Uh, uh, values from a business perspective must be differentiable. And so you know, a famous example is Southwest Airlines decided when they started that they were going to be fun as a brand. Mm -hmm. No airline was talking about being fun in 1970, whatever, when Southwest Airlines got started. And so that differentiated them from everyone else. And you can see that still flows through the organization today. And so we talk about that. And then we talk about setting, uh, using strategy, but to me, the output of strategy has to be a set of strategic objectives, which are clearly definable goals out two or three years in the future. There's a lot of strategy work you need may need to do behind the scenes to get to that. But if you don't have some clear milestones you can communicate to the organization out in the future, 
uh, all that strategy work to me is kind of wasted because if the organization doesn't know where you're going, right. it's going to be really hard to get there. And so we put that all together into a one page document. And then we, uh, in my businesses, I printed out an 11 by 17 sheet of paper, laminate it and stick it on everybody's desk so that they absolutely know what the plan is from a high level for the organization. And it's shocking to me. Uh, I used to walk into businesses all the time. And one of my favorite questions to just kind of the random employee sitting in a cube was what's the, what's the plan here in this business. And every time they would look at me like I was crazy and go, don't you understand, sir? I just, you know, I do AP or I, you know, I'm a sales guy or whatever. They had no, no clue where the business was going. And then the CEO shocked that people aren't making the right decisions to move towards their vision when that vision has not been communicated in any meaningful way to the company. Fully, fully agreed. And uh, I like to do an exercise, which is kind of the vision reverse engineering, uh, where I start with long term and come to the midterm and then the short uh, terms sure. of typically, you know, I, I try to not stay too much in, in the long term kind of the 10 year vision, but but we still need to have that North Star, that dream mm-hmm. in the future, mm-hmm. right? So then come right. to the to the three year uh, vision and be able also to write down. So what is success uh, yes. in 10 years, three years and next next year? So I, yep. I think it's even much easier than to be able to define what are the objectives, what are the milestones that we want to achieve next year when we have it clear that kind of North Star in the future and the three year plan. Uh, in place because nowadays, uh, as we know, the the five year plans uh, might be <laughs> a little a bit little too long much. out there. Yeah, <laughs> hard to predict. <laughs> and also, I like the free because in the five you were kind of you know I still have five years to get there. When it's free, yeah. it's oh we are already going for the first year and the first year is ending. So four quarters and it's only twelve quarters to for thirty six months, right? So. 12 quarters, that's not a lot. You just said that you break, bro- broke the records uh, over 30 <laughs> plus uh, quarters, uh, so yeah. which shows uh, how many years we, we, we were talking about, uh, which is pretty incredible. Anyway, really, really enjoyed. A- anything that you would like to, to highlight or, or, or maybe let, let me come back to, to, to a question that I like is some people are, are maybe thinking, is this applicable for any size of companies so is this applicable for for ceos who are leading a company from 50 to 250 people 250 to 500 people or 500 to 1000 i will exclude startups here because we we talk much more about about scaling up here yeah so you know that's one of the interesting things that i've not seen many people talk about is the nature of the ceo role and how it changes based on basically number of employees is is probably the best metric to use uh, and it's not in the obvious way. People, you know, would think that running a company of 200 and running a company of 2,000 are, are dramatically different. My experience is there are three three basic stages. Uh, there's the one employee to 25 or so employee startup phase, which you know most people can run out of their head. They know what everybody's doing. They're they're serving as CEO and all the key executive roles, or maybe they've got a partner who's CTO, but they're doing most of the executive roles. And then you transition from from about 25 or 30, that starts getting impossible for one person to be the executive in charge of everything. And so then there's a transition that occurs to about 100 or 150 employees somewhere in there. 
where you find executives who can run each of the functional areas of the business. And you, if you're doing it right, hand off those responsibilities. But once you get to 150 employees and you've got a full executive team, that didn't dramatically feel different running. I remember when we sold NetQOS, we were around 270 employees. And that didn't feel dramatically different to me running NetQOS or running the public company that had 3,000 employees. And the reason for that is because from the CEO's perspective, it was basically the same group of people. I had an eight or 10 person executive team. I had a board that I had was responsible for, maybe a few individual contributors. Sure, we were a public company. And so I had to get online and read a statement every quarter. Uh, but the day-to-day -day job of the CEO didn't change that much from 250 uh, to 3,000. What did change dramatically is the job of the CEO from 20 employees to 100 employees. And that's where we see most founders fail because they fail to make the transition and they try to run 100 employees five, uh, by working five times as hard as they worked when they were running 20 employees. Right. <laughs> and right. that, doesn't, that doesn't work. Right. Yeah, and that, and that I was kind of putting myself in the in the shoes of the CEO here, especially the, the ones who are listening to us and kind of saying, what, what is one of the struggles, especially let's assume we already got to 100 people, right? So and typically there, the systems are breaking. If you don't have the right people on the right seats in, in the leadership team, things will get a nightmare for the CEO. And typically, if you are growing very quickly, it is always difficult to balance. Sometimes you don't have yet the profitability or you didn't raise capital enough to be able to hire great people in all seats. So you need to select those seats. But sometimes I say, oh, I, I don't have a, a CFO to sit at, at this stage and I, I will not invest in the CFO or in a, on a, in a world-class CFO yet. But what typically I like to say is, you need to have a finance representation in that call. Maybe maybe right. it's, it's a, a junior person it's not the ideal version 2.0 or 3.0 4.0 as i want to call it maybe you will invest more now in the cro or in the cmo or or in the coo whatever it is um but what what's your what's your position on on kind of structuring the leadership team having in mind that sometimes you have a constraint you can't invest uh in sure. world class people uh in all positions right yeah, I think this really goes back to, to a more even more fundamental point. What is your mental model for your business? Uh, and I, I, this is something I've, I've used a lot in training that really opens people's eyes because most people's business model for business is I build a product or, or I have a service or whatever, and I sell that product and more is better. Uh, selling more is better. And I do that while trying to not run out of money. And that is kind of their operating model for a business in their, in their head. And that works at the startup phase. That is the startup job is to define a product, sell it, uh, and don't run out of money. But once you get to these scale-up phases we're talking about, I think yeah. businesses get much more complicated. And you've got to have a more complicated business model. And this is where a lot of CEOs fail because if you don't have the experience, you don't see that bigger model. If you come out of sales, you think everything's sales and there's nothing else to the business. And so I talk about the, you see on the cover of the book, the two triangles of tension. There are really six kind of fundamental areas of the business that the CEO has to focus on. There's, first of all, a triangle of tension between employees, customers, and shareholders. 
that you're constantly balancing. And the only way to build a long-term, sustainable, thriving business is to provide value to each of those groups consistently. You have to constantly provide value to the employees. You have to constantly provide value to customers. You have to constantly provide value to shareholders. And those are fundamental positions to me in any organization chart. The CFO typically represents shareholders, a chief customer officer to represent customers, and a CHRO to represent the employees. And then internal to the business, there's another triangle of tension between sales, marketing, and product. And, you know, CEOs come to me all the time and ask me, you know, how do I get my sales and marketing people to get along? And I say, that's kind of like cats and dogs. They don't get along, but you can teach them <laughs> to coexist. But that's really your job is managing that tension between sales, marketing, and product. And so, you know, fundamentally, from an organizational perspective, you need somebody who's representing sales at the table, somebody who's representing marketing at the table, and somebody who's representing the product uh, or the service at the table. And so I have CEOs all the time draw out those six fundamental areas and then put the right name in the box. And yeah, sometimes you're not going to have the resources such that you have a unique name in every one of those boxes, but you need to then understand that if, if you don't have a name in that box, you're it. And there are times you need to do that particular role. Like you mentioned, the CFO, if you don't have a CFO, that's fine. But then you need to understand you're, you need to be the CFO uh, for that organization. And, and that is a different set of, of requirements than the CEO job. And so often when I draw that out for people, people begin to understand why they're having problems in their organization is because they don't have this underlying mental model and functional model of how a business works and somebody's not represented at the table. Yeah. Uh, and, and sometimes what I see also, especially in the ones who are trying to, you know, stay profitable as they scale. And, and we know that growth sucks cash and it's, it's really difficult to have profitable uh, growth uh, is, you know, um, being a little bit afraid of consuming some of the profitability with hiring those uh, high-level uh, leadership team members that maybe will ever return very quickly, but typically it takes 12 months to have a real return and then get to a size where, you know, the company starts scaling to a stage where the cost starts becoming much less and then they get again to the, the same level of profitability that they were uh, before. But doing that that compromise in terms of the of the profitability and in terms also in the, of the impact in the cash flow, it's typically a difficult decision this decision to do. And uh, and typically, I see the CEO kind of being in between the the chicken and the egg kind of kind of question, which means if I don't hire this role, I will not be able to get to the certain scale. But in the short term, this will affect our profitability and our cash flow level. So. Any any ideas about how sure. to how to unblock this kind of yeah. fear that comes from from the one at the top? Absolutely. Um, and so the key here, and and this is a you know key part of the operating system, is building a business that is predictable, uh, and it, and training every employee in the organization to look at things from a prediction perspective. Most organizations run from a data perspective. They think we collect all this data and then we analyze that data and that tells us what to do. The problem with that is data by definition is historical. It's already happened. Can't be data until it's already happened. Right. Uh, and so you're always looking backwards. 
what you have to do is you have to train your employees to constantly predict what is likely to happen in the future. And so the consequence of that, if you get good at that, is your ability to run the business at the edge. The, the, the mantra I gave while we were having these, you know, 31 quarters of double digit growth is I want to grow as fast as we can without running out of money, but I need predictability to do that. And, and we had great predictability in our business because we built that in. Uh, and that allowed us to have visibility into cash flow out typically six months in advance. Most businesses I go in don't know how much cash they're going to have in the bank next week. And if yeah. you don't know how much cash you're going to have in the bank next week, yeah, it's really hard to decide whether I hire that, you know, executive. Uh, but if I know how much cash I'm going to have in the bank six months from now, I've got some flexibility because I have time to adjust if things start turning down a little bit or whatever. And so that's one of the reasons it's so important to have an operating system in your business is so you're not running blind. I mean, most businesses to me are run like a bus driver driving the bus by looking in the rearview mirror. And then they're shocked when they run into things. Well, they have no visibility in front of them into the, their operation of their business. And so, you know, a, a six month cash flow is one of the things that I work with every CEO. If you don't have that in your business today, that a reasonably accurate six month cash flow, uh, and you don't know where that is kind of in your head, uh, you've got a problem. You're like, that's just like driving a bus with the front windshield all fogged up. I love it. So we, we kind of covered uh, a bit the importance of having a clear vision so that everyone in the organization knows what is the plan, kind of the the, the question that you like to ask when you walk around uh, <laughs> right. the company. Uh, then we, we kind of discussed it much more that independently of, of the, of the size of the business, you are still leading your leadership team. So what changes is, is the version of that leadership team, as I like to call it, it's the version 2.0, 3.0, or even sure. if you want to the version 5 million, the version 10 million, the version 25 million, it's even better because then you know what, what is the version that you are talking about. Then we kind of discussed it also the importance of, uh, not only looking to your revenue, but also to your profitability and your cash flow, the cash flow map for for the next um, six months. Um, so when and I wanted to introduce the the next one, and then I forgot when I when I was doing the, <laughs> the, the summary. Now I know, which is typically what I like to say in in my own framework, which is clarity of vision, then world class team, and then the execution machine. So which is all about mm -hmm. the cadence. Uh, and sure. the importance of communication. So yep. we know what is the plan, but we need to be uh, in the know about what is going and what are the blockers. How do we uh, unblock the the blockers? Let's uh, let's say in that in that way. Um, do do you do you have any kind of meeting cadence that you like to see? Kind of a weekly, a quarterly, an annual, uh, one on one, sure. the tone all. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, you know, we talk about that extensively in the operating system. Uh, you know, typically a weekly team meeting's great, but but what's in that team meeting's what's really critical. And right. and uh, you know, to get this predictive kind of performance, you've got to not only have everything structured correctly by setting clear goals. Uh, we, I, I'm a big believer in goals on a quarterly basis that are clearly set. But then you got to ask the right question. Uh, most organizations ask the question of every employee, where are you on that goal? That's the wrong question to ask. Mm -hmm. I don't care where you are on the goal. I care how likely you are to achieve the goal. 
And so, you know, the perfect example of that, you've got a salesperson, they're 80% of their way towards their quota, but they've got no pipeline left. They know they're not going to hit their number. All they can do with telling me they're 80% to quota is confuse me because I'm going to look at my watch and go, oh, wait a minute, you're 80% to quota, you're going to get done this quarter. They know they're not <laughs> going to get there. Right. On, the, on the reverse, they could be at 20% and I could be looking at that and be all concerned, but they know they've got plenty of deals and they're going to knock it out of the park this quarter. And right. so most organizations don't ask the right question. Don't set, well, first of all, they don't set clear goals and objectives and then ask the right question. So if you walked into my uh, weekly meeting running a public company, billion dollar revenue uh, yeah. or near uh, billion dollar revenue public company, that meeting took 30 minutes. Well, we didn't look at a bunch of charts. We didn't look at a bunch of data. We looked at the five or six objectives that we had told the board we were trying to achieve this quarter. And I turned to the group and basically said, hey, we said we're going to generate $250 million in revenue this quarter. Anybody got any reason to believe we're not going to get there? Well, <laughs> if we do, let me know. <laughs> if not, then I'm going to go assume everything's okay and, and you know, let's go to the next goal. And that is the only way at scale that you can run an organization. If you say, show me all the deals we're working <laughs> when you're doing yeah. 250, I mean, it, it has no value. I can't provide any value as the CEO yeah. doing that. If I can look at the sales data and figure out something in that five minutes that my executive in charge of sales who spends 50 hours, 60 right. hours a week in the data doesn't know, all I know is I've got an idiot running sales, okay? Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, but, but a lot of CEOs think, you know, it makes them comfortable. Show me the data. Show me what we're doing. How's that deal going? How's that, you know, you're totally... Uh, sidetracked and you're actually being the, the VP of sales when you're exactly. asking all those questions, you're not being the CEO. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you, you are teaching the, the VP sales there, uh, which is uh, a huge red flag. And uh, I hope at that stage, unless you came from a VP sales background to become the, the CEO, uh, you should not be uh, an amazing VP sales, neither an amazing VP finance, neither an amazing uh, VP operations. So that's, that's right. That's why, yeah, the CEOs are generalists, right? So yes, uh, they Absolutely. just know what looks good or what doesn't look. So they were really quick to understand if people are telling the, they, them crap or not, right? Because that's <laughs> that's the way they, they're able to defend themselves, right? Well, again, that's that's a key part of the system is if you ask people to predict their performance, if they tell you all quarter, they're going to get there, I'm going to achieve this goal, I'm going to achieve this goal, I'm going to achieve this goal, and then they don't achieve the goal, you have just identified a poor performer with their own data. I don't have to know anything about sales, to know that if the salesperson tells me every week they're going to hit their number and they don't hit their number, they didn't do their job. Right. An eight an eight year old can manage from that perspective. <laughs> okay. Uh, you told me all quarter you were going to get it done. You didn't get it done. That's you saying you didn't do your job. And so that's a, a key part of the system. And when you're managing these executives, you know, I'm managing a public company. I got a CFO who's got 30 years public company experience. What the right. hell do I know about being, a, uh, you know, I can't get into the technical details, but I can set clear goals and objectives that help meet the goals and objectives of the organization. And then I can hold him accountable to telling me whether he's going to get to achieve those goals or not. And if he doesn't, if he tells me he is and he doesn't, 
that is a clear sign he is not performing. Uh, and that's really all there is to it. Don't make it super complicated. And that's the digital part. So if we go back to the to the startup stage of the organization, so you want you love it to have that CFO, that VP sales, that VPCS, and you didn't have almost any of the seats in the table. So if you didn't do it yourself, nothing would happen. So you will just go bankrupt and get out of yeah. business, right? Yeah. And so you develop those habits of doing that job at the startup stage, and I've been there and done it. Yeah. But once you get to scale, you have to stop doing everybody else's executive roles let's go. And, and 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 let it go and and most a lot of ceos that's where founders fail if they make it past that stage like you know you got a founder that's running a 250 person company there's no reason to me they can't take it to be a 10,000 person company but if they haven't if they haven't made that transition from 25 to 150 that's where typically they get replaced by the board and they and please don't come with excuse that uh, we we don't have enough profitability or cash flow to hire those people because then we might not have a real business and we might have an issue with the with the strategy and with the model. Maybe we should not competing at all in in that area, right? So uh, yeah, I mean, at those numbers, you know, once you get to one hundred and fifty, you, you know, do you really need the forty second software developer? Uh, you know, are they really contributing or how about we only have 40 software developers and we hire a head of HR because employee engagement and management is going to be a really big deal for us being successful in this organization. Yeah. So we, we have been talking about kind of the, you know, the typical issues that we see in CEOs, but the difficult part, and I like it, our conversation, because I think that we got to some specific details and specific kind of uh, thought process, bad habits that we need to get out and, and and be able to move to the next stage. And maybe I would like to kind of close the show by before going to the, to the last segment of the show where we have a, a quick question and answer uh, rhythm by asking you, is there anything that typically people don't agree with you or it's not kind of the common language when we are talking about training CEOs that you'd like to highlight where you have a contrarian view uh, about yeah. the, the CEO role? Yeah, I think it's it's a lot around um, how CEOs are selected uh, and what people think is good experience for a CEO. And, uh, you know, most of the time uh, uh, when I see CEOs being hired, there are a couple of different models. Uh, a lot of times they hire a, a somebody who's had a sales, a large sales position and think that having run a hundred million dollar sales organization makes them well qualified to be CEO of a $10 million company. Uh, and uh, to me, again, that's because they have a poor mental model. If they understood that customers and employees and shareholders are a big part of the CEO job and the typical salesperson has no experience setting HR policy, uh, dealing with shareholders and investors, even really dealing with customer service, that those areas are just as likely to be a problem as sales and that you're not hiring somebody to come in and, and, and sell more for the organization as CEO. And then, and then the other model you see is hiring a CFO type uh, to watch the money, you know, and that's their background and think that makes them because they've watched the money at a billion dollar company. They're perfect to be CEO of a hundred million dollar company. And, and that's just different. They're just different roles. And so, you know, the experience and how you hire a CEO 
Uh, I want people who are generalists, as you mentioned, uh, the more broad their experience, the more likely they're going to be able to transition into the CEO role well, uh, and more likely they're going to be successful. Uh, if you just hire the best salesperson, then don't be shocked when the company kind of goes to heck in a handbasket from an execution perspective because they're just running around trying to make deals. Absolutely. That is the typical uh, <laughs> red flag that we see in a lot of uh, startups when they've typically the, the technical background. That's another kind of issue is lack of revenue instincts and lack of uh, how to build the, the revenue machine. On the other side is, yeah, people that are a little bit um, bipolar. One day they uh, wake up with one idea about how they will get the next deal. Uh, the other day <laughs> yeah. they will wake up with another idea and then the, the organization is completely without focus uh, and everyone is frustrated. And, and then it gets to a moment that you can't save the quarter anymore uh, at the last minute uh, no right. matter how much you work right so sure just typically why we see that then it it comes the growth plateau and you can't break the the growth plateau there so let's let's go to the last uh, segment of the show joel if you'd have the opportunity to have a quick coffee with yourself at the beginning of your mm -hmm. career in in the 90s um, what what advice would you offer to your younger joel well, you know, I had an engineering degree, and so I thought it was all about being smart and technical and and knowing things. And and I would tell the younger Joel that uh, you need to learn about, start learning about people, and all the unique human behaviors and foibles. And because to achieve anything great, you're going to have to get a large group of people to work together, and that's really challenging if you think everybody uh, is just like you because they're not. What are you the most proud of on your journey so far? Well, from a you know kind of pure business perspective, the the thirty one quarters of double digit growth, I think were you know was a because you don't get there by accident. That requires a lot of right. of uh, work. You know, somebody you can have a good run, but you don't keep doing it quarter after quarter after quarter without shooting yourself in the foot unless you kind of have a good management leadership system in place. Right. Worst advice ever received. Yeah, so I, I, I've had people, I, I remember one particular instance that took over as CEO, uh, and people say, well, you shouldn't do anything. You should, you know, just observe for the first 90 days or 180 days and kind of figure out what's going on. And and I, I think that's terrible advice for a CEO. I mean, a CEO is like captain of the ship. And, you know, if you step on deck as captain and you say, well, I'm just going to watch, the crew's like, well, wait a minute, we don't even know where we're going yet. <laughs> and so you, you, when you step into the CEO role, you, you kind of have to take charge. That doesn't mean you want to blow everything up right away, but but you're responsible day one. And so you better figure out where we're going quick and and what to do. And and you can't just sit back like you can in some roles where you take over a role that and the organization's running well and and you just kind of sit and I say, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to observe. That works in some of the executive roles. I don't think that works in the CEO role. Favorite book? Um, probably First Break All the Rules. Marcus Buckingham came out uh, 25 years ago or something now, a long time ago. Uh, but yeah. it was the first book that for me uh, satisfied the engineer in me about the people side of the equation that gave real data and information about how to think about people. And uh, so that was very influential in my career. 
favorite movie or series whatever you prefer. well yeah my favorite business er uh, business movie uh partly because it's hard to find and not never everybody's seen it but uh is barbarians at the gate uh which is the story of the leverage buyout of rjr nabisco uh the book there was a book of course barbarians at the gate a lot of nbas have read the book and the book's fabulous but the movie was also pretty good too and it's uh uh if you haven't I seen that uh, yeah absolutely. yeah it's uh only available on dvd uh and okay. so you can't can't stream it uh and so a lot of people have <laughs> never seen it <laughs> i like that one and finally your favorite podcast uh all in all in yeah, yeah the all in the, yeah. the all in podcast is uh one that i uh have have enjoyed especially lately they've been doing a lot of great things uh some of the presidential candidates and stuff and i have a i have an interest in the the to me you know the american president role is the ultimate ceo role hardest uh most complicated yep. ceo role in the world and so i i follow that uh kind of as a hobby absolutely joel Congrats for the amazing career and for the amazing book and everything that you are doing to support CEOs. We have that passion in common and helping them scale. And thanks so much for making the time and sharing your experience with us. Great to be here and you know, happy to have people reach out. Love talking about uh, how to be a better CEO. Thank you. And to our community, thanks for being there. As you see, we keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier as you scale up your company. See you soon and keep scaling.